welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James. Welcome and thank you for listening in. And this week, Madden America's science news team writer Gavin Kroll Williamson interviews Dr. Adrian Fuberman. I'm joined today by Dr. Adrian Fuberman, who is a professor of pharmacology and physiology with a joint appointment in the Department of Family Medicine at Georgetown University. As the director of Farmed Out, a Georgetown research and education project that promotes rational prescribing and exposes the effect of pharmaceutical marketing on prescribing practices, Dr. Fuberman leads a team that has a profound impact on prescribers' perceptions of the adverse consequences of industry marketing. Uh, thank you for joining me here today, Dr. Fuberman. I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. Thanks for having me, Gavin. So we're here to talk today about your article, uh, Continuing Medical Education and the Marketing of Fentanyl for Breakthrough Pain. But first, can you tell me a little bit about your background and what drove you to do this sort of research? Well, I really started off as a a women's health activist even before I went to medical school and um, have been able to really use the medical degree to expand advocacy in the area of women's health, but also public health in general. Yeah, and it seems to me like a lot of your work is motivated by your passion for studying conflicts of interest in big pharma. And can you kind of speak to where that specific interest of yours came from? Well, it's it's really about promoting evidence-based medicine. I'm very interested in people having information about both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic therapies that are evidence-based and to have that information be free of industry influence. Mm-hmm. So that that's really what uh, what motivates me, um, and also being against medicalization of daily life um, or uh, minor ailments, and uh, making sure that when people do use medicine, that the uh, benefits are apt to outweigh the risks. Yeah, absolutely. And can you tell me a little bit about the founding of Farmed Out? Kind of what the motivation was for it, who came together to make it happen, uh, those sorts of things. Sure. So about 10 years ago, um, the attorneys general of the United States, so all of uh, attorneys general from all of the states and um, the District of Columbia, took money that they um, had gotten in in a lawsuit against pharmaceutical manufacturers for off-label promotion of of a drug called Neurontin. And they used that money to fund Um, education of prescribers and patients on pharmaceutical marketing practices. So Farmed Out or or Georgetown University Medical Center um, got one of um, these grants. I'd applied for one of these grants, and that's how we started uh, Farmed Out to educate prescribers about inappropriate pharmaceutical marketing practices. Mm -hmm. That grant was for two years, um, but after the after the grant ran out, um, everybody who worked on the project was so committed to it that no one left, even though no one was getting paid anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it was an unbelievable uh, level of commitment. And so we started just raising um, money from friends and family so that we could keep paying our project manager. um, And we've been able to keep going for the last 10 years um, based primarily on individual um, contributions. We have we have a few other sources of, of money now, including um, we had a contract for uh, for several years from the D.C. Department of Health to create industry-free continuing education uh, web-based for doctors, nurses, and pharmacists. So that's also been one of our sources of income, but we're primarily still supported by individual donations. 
Wow, that's amazing. Um, and I think one of the cool things, at least to me, about Farmed Out is that you offer uh, CMEs with no industry ties. Um, can you speak a little bit to why you find that important? Yes, it's a it's an issue that most people don't know very much about, but almost all states and the majority, almost all physicians in the United States, um, also nurses and pharmacists, have to do a certain number of hours of continuing education a year. Well, uh, everyone likes uh, free continuing education, and uh, most of the free continuing education is funded by pharmaceutical um, companies and, and other other medical companies. And it always has marketing messages in them. Those marketing messages may be um, very subtle, but uh, industry-funded continuing education always has marketing messages in them. And Farmed Out is actually the only group in the world that is looking at marketing messages in continuing education. Education is not regulated in the same way as promotion is. So the Food and Drug Administration, for example, does not consider anything educational to be promotional. And in fact, all industry-funded continuing education is in fact promotional, even if that promotion is very subtle. So that that's an area that we have um, created research methods in to, to reverse engineer marketing messages from continuing education. Yeah, and I know that uh, in an interview you did with The Chronicle, you outlined some of the challenges you've had getting your studies with Farmed Out published. Can you speak to that a little further? Yes, uh, we try to get our studies published in good medical journals. And unfortunately, uh, most medical journals get a lot of money, not only from pharmaceutical company advertising, but also from the purchase of reprints by uh, pharmaceutical companies. And so they're very loath to publish articles that are critical of pharmaceutical companies or uh, medical device companies, et cetera. And so that it is actually very difficult for us to get our studies published. Another reason that it's difficult is that we do a lot of qualitative work, and that's mm-hmm. not something that's easily published in, in, um, in biomedical literature. But we really want to get it into biomedical literature because we want physicians and biomedical researchers to read this and not have it be sort of hidden in the social science literature, which they'll never see. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and can you kind of speak to where Farmed Out is at right now? What sort of projects you're working on and the direction you think or hope you'll be going? We're doing so much on opioids right now um, because we're in the midst of this epidemic. And what people don't understand is that opioid promotion is still going on. It's going on internationally. It's going on in the U.S that most of the market for opioids is in chronic pain patients. And so what opioid manufacturers are doing is everything they can to prevent any sort of regulations on uh, doses or duration of opioids. They're fighting all efforts on this on every front, and, and we are fighting back. So we're doing a lot on opioids. We're doing a lot on um, marketing messages in industry-funded continuing education, and we're also doing a lot on disease invention. There's nothing to prevent pharmaceutical companies from just creating diseases, <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. and of course they have specific drugs available for each of the diseases that they create, or subdividing diseases. So, for example, making lots of different flavors of depression so that they mm-hmm. can position their particular drug for a particular flavor of depression or a particular flavor of anxiety. Um, and so this is all done for market positioning. And this has the effect of um, it's not necessarily helpful for patients and, in fact, can make many people 
um, feel ill when really there's nothing wrong with them or they are just a, a, a normal human um, variant of personality, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're you're hitting on a lot of the points that I want to talk to. So this, this seems like a good opportunity to lead into the study. So can you first give me a brief outline of the background, methodology, and major findings of your study on continuing medical education and the marketing of fentanyl for breakthrough pain? Um, Yes. So we were looking at several um, conditions that were essentially made up by pharmaceutical companies. And one of them is breakthrough pain. They didn't actually make up the term, but in terms of making it to a disease, that was really an industry invention. So breakthrough pain refers to when somebody is on um, opioids for, say, end-of-life pain. So let's say that they're, they have cancer pain and they're taking morphine every eight hours and around hour six or seven, they're in terrible pain. So the way that's called breakthrough pain, it's breaking through the dosing regimen. And the way that we would deal with that is to decrease the dosing interval. So say, okay, well, take the morphine every six hours instead of every eight hours. Maybe we'll lower the dose some. So that would be a way of dealing with it. Well, there were there were companies that had rapid-acting fentanyl pro, um, products that only lasted about 45 minutes. Now, that can be really useful if somebody's undergoing a painful dental procedure, for example, or undergoing wound debridement or um, cleaning out of a wound, which can be very, very painful. And we routinely use opioids to deal with pain in that circumstance but you don't need the opioid to last very long. So that would be a perfect use for rapid-acting fentanyl. But it's a very limited market when you're talking about short, painful conditions. <laughs> so what um, what Cephalon um, did, they, they first had Actique, which was a fentanyl lollipop. And then when the patent started to run out on the lollipop, they essentially did the lollipop without the stick or a fentanyl uh, lozenge. And uh, it, and then immediately started um, undermining the lollipop, which then became a generic. So they said that, oh, adults don't want to be seen with a lollipop stick <laughs> um, <laughs> coming out of their mouth. It, it's the stigma of the stick. The lozenge is much more discreet. <laughs> so what what this company did was to... Uh, was to take over the concept of breakthrough pain and describe it as as a sort of different kind of pain um, that should be treated with the short-acting fentanyl. So even if somebody's on a long-acting opioid, that they should be given bursts of short-acting fentanyl Mm. when they had breakthrough pain. Well, this is really dangerous. These submucosal products that are absorbed um, from under the tongue and and, uh, from inside the cheek get into the bloodstream much, much faster than taking an oral dose of an opioid. In fact, they get into the bloodstream almost as fast as as mainlining or intravenous use of a drug. And when something hits you faster, it's more addictive. And that's definitely true of these fentanyl preparations. So they were popular, of course, on the street, but they also, by increasing the level of opioid in someone's body very quickly, they were also far more dangerous. They were much more apt to cause respiratory depression, especially since they were only approved to treat breakthrough pain in people who are already on opioids. So people mm-hmm. already had a background level of opioids. Yeah, absolutely. And now they're taking, you know, they're taking a burst of an even stronger opioid that acts really fast. So that was also um, uh, also quite dangerous. And, you know, and like I said, this was a condition, it wasn't really a condition. It was just, it was something that we could deal with very easily by uh, using good old 
generic low-cost morphine, which is an amazing drug because you can use it intravenously, you can use it orally, you can use it sublingually. um, And because it's in a liquid, you can um, change the, you can titrate the dose um, sort of endlessly. So uh, um, morphine is a really great opioid to use. So, so fentanyl, um, these fentanyl products were positioned for treatment of breakthrough pain. And in order to position it, the company had to convince physicians that breakthrough pain was a particular kind of pain. And then they also essentially promoted the use of, of fentanyl for different kinds of pain that weren't cancer pain, but were pain of low back pain or osteoarthritis, for example, or even irritable bowel syndrome were conditions in which it was never appropriate to use opioids. So we, we wanted to look at, well, how, how is breakthrough pain uh, or, or how is the positioning of opioids sold to, to physicians in, in a way? So we wanted to compare um, an industry-funded and a non-industry-funded continuing medical education module on breakthrough pain. So that didn't work out very well because <laughs> we couldn't find any non-industry-funded <laughs> modules on breakthrough pain because industry invented breakthrough pain. So therefore, <laughs> there were no non-industry-funded modules on breakthrough pain. Mm-hmm. So we ended up comparing an industry-funded um, CME activity on breakthrough pain with uh, pain guidelines that were done by an association of pain physicians. So that's what we compared. And we actually randomized participants to either read the industry-funded article or the non-industry-funded article. And then we had them take the test from the industry-funded CME activity. Um, There wasn't a test that was associated with the other article. So it wasn't a perfect comparison, but we couldn't get a perfect comparison because because of just just the situation. But, But what was most interesting about our study, I think, is that we also asked people to summarize what were the main messages that you got out of reading this? Uh, What were the take-home messages? What were the pearls? And that was really interesting because, of course, you can write something in such a way that you take away certain messages or or a, a sort of underplay others. And what we found is that people who read the industry-funded article, um, the messages that they came up with were opioids are underused and they should be used more often in pain <laughs> conditions. Um, and they didn't mention adverse effects. And the ones who read the non-industry-funded article on opioids said opioids are overused and they can cause addiction and death. <laughs> so completely different messages. And that, that, was, um, that was a really important thing to do. And the idea, by the way, was given to us by um, a former drug company executive who said oh, wow. that this is how pharmaceutical companies evaluate uh, whether audiences are taking away the messages that they want them to take away with, from them because those exact statements are not made in these articles. They're not made in this in continuing medical education. It's just, you can't say that the industry-funded module never mentioned addiction. It did tend to call it lack of compliance with the treatment agreement. <laughs> Um, they sort of made it seem like a pesky paperwork pro- problem. <laughs> um, but you can't say they didn't mention it, but you can mention something in such a way that it underplays it. Or if you mention death, but you mentioned it at the, at the end of a long list of um, of complications that starts with constipation and nausea, mm-hmm. someone might lose interest before reading the whole list and think, oh, well, constipation, nausea, that's that's not so bad. <laughs> sure, <laughs> you yeah. know, when you start an adverse event list with addiction and respiratory 
depression and death that <laughs> would get somebody's attention more. So th- this is the problem with the continuing um, education coordinators assessing uh, modules for bias is they don't actually know what to look for. And in fact, it, it takes a lot of work to actually be able to reverse engineer marketing messages <laughs> from these modules. So what's exciting about the study that you're asking about, it was the it's the first randomized controlled trial um, that I that I know of where we actually compared an industry where anybody compared an industry funded and non industry funded mm-hmm. uh, module and looked at it looked at what the marketing messages um, are in them. Yeah, and I think you're you're hinting at this, but I'm just going to ask it outright. Uh, I think that some folks would be quick to say, you know, the results to this study are sort of obvious. Of course, there's bias in industry-funded CMEs. Uh, Why did you think it was important to do this study despite the quote-unquote obvious results that you found? Well, this just shows that consumers are smarter than doctors in this way, (laughs) (laughs) because it's not at all obvious to doctors. It's not at all obvious to um, the the offices that that accredit continuing education. Um, It's not at all obvious to regulators um, about this, so yeah, uh, it it should be um, it should be obvious, and you know, doctors are plenty smart in um, in in many different ways, but they're they're not good at assessing persuasive uh, writing. They're not good at recognizing or analyzing um, sales techniques. They're not good at at social psychology. Um, they, these are not things that they're they're trained in. They're not things that they're they're naturally um, inclined um, towards. Um, people in the financial world say that physicians are very likely to be taken in by financial scams. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that there is a um, apparently a a pretty uh, fatal combination of being sort of um, arrogant and naive at the same time <laughs> that makes uh, physicians perhaps more gullible or more susceptible to certain marketing techniques than even the general population might be. And I think one of the limitations of this study is that it did run a somewhat small sample size. Um, So given the small sample size, what sort of reasonable implications do you think can be drawn from this study? Yeah, it's definitely a pilot study. Um, This is a study that was done um, with no funding whatsoever. (laughs) Um, And we've been been working on um, doing... um, qualitative uh, analyses of uh, continuing medical education uh, modules on other drugs um, and the use of them to establish other diseases. So we we published an article, for example, looking at marketing messages uh, um, is, in establishing hypoactive sexual desire disorder as a, as a real disease, even though we don't think it's a real disease. So um, yeah, this is a small sample size, but, but you know, the hope is that some of the techniques that we've created could be used to assess other continuing education modules, mm-hmm. um, at, you know, at a later point. Yeah. And you keep leading me perfectly into my next question. So uh, thank you for making my job easier. Um, but one of the pieces I found particularly interesting in your study was the concept of manufacturing diseases to sell drugs, such as the invention of social anxiety disorder to sell Paxil. Um, so can you explain how you feel breakthrough pain and fentanyl fit that mold? And more broadly, do you feel like opiates in general are marketed in this capacity? Yeah. So there's different ways that a company can do what they call condition branding a disease or matching a particular drug with a particular condition. So you might take a condition that already exists and take a subset of that um, of that condition, for example. So there was a, a depression drug, um, for example. Antidepressants are also used to treat pain. They can be useful for treating pain. But there was, um, there was an antidepressant that was put on the market specifically to treat 
depression and pain. And so their tagline was depression hurts. And Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) the way that they sold it was, well, do you have patients who are depressed and get headaches? Do you have patients who are depressed and have low back pain? <laughs> oh boy. And of course, that's just about everybody, right? So, yeah. um, so that that was a way of condition branding the combination, I guess, of depression and pain, for example. So, so one way to do it is to take sort of to subdivide a, a disease that already um, exists, or to rename um, a condition that already exists. So, for example, erectile dysfunction. Um, so we used to call erectile dysfunction impotence, which was sort of a terrible word. Mm-hmm. Um, but when Pfizer came out with Viagra or in the years before it came out with Viagra, it was the, the first and for a while the only treatment out there um, for this. But they wanted to rename the condition in order to condition brand it. So they came up with erectile dysfunction or ED. <laughs> so that was one way of doing it. And then there's, but of course, erectile dysfunction is, no matter what you call it, is real. And they actually had an effective treatment for it. There's other diseases um, that are are completely made up or or might be taking a particular personality type or a particular uh, a particular um, life phase and and medicalizing it or in some, or in some cases just making it up. So for example, social anxiety disorder was created to sell um, a an anxiety drug. Um, a depression and anxiety drug that was late to market. In other words, it was the fifth or sixth or seventh antidepressant out there. So rather than sell it for uh, depression, the company created this concept of social anxiety disorder. Now, there are people who certainly suffer from social anxiety. There are a number of treatments for it, but they created social anxiety disorder, SAD or SAD, (laughs) and condition branded their drug for that particular uh, flavor of anxiety. <laughs> there are drugs that were conditioned branded to um, treat menopause or to treat low testosterone, um, for example. And the symptoms that were associated with both of these conditions were really just symptoms of aging, but were cast as, oh, these are symptoms of hormone deficiency and you need to um, amp up somebody's uh estrogen if they're a woman or testosterone if they're a man but if they're a man and uh, both of these hormonal treatments um, have serious adverse effects and don't actually um, combat um, aging <laughs> and I think another uh, one of the major takeaways from this study is that the tools that we currently possess are not adequate to identify the subtle bias that exists in drug marketing so what do you think uh, you learned from this study about how we can combat that? Well, um, one of the things that we um, argue for is that education should be completely separate from industry, that industry should not be funding education of physicians or um, consumers because they're they're never going to be um, objective <laughs> about okay. it. Um, and that's also true of assessing their drugs. So industry develops drugs and that's what they should do. Um, and they test their drugs, and that's what they should do. But in terms of evaluating their drugs in the context of other drugs or other treatments, that's not something that they should be doing because they're not going to be objective about it. And I'm hoping with the series of studies and articles that we've done or will um, and are planning on doing that we'll be able to show people that it's impossible to extract the marketing from education in in what industry provides. 
and mm-hmm. that it's better not to try <laughs> to do that, but simply <laughs> to ban industry's involvement uh, in education of either prescribers or consumers, and that the assessment of drugs, um, the comparative assessment of drugs and non-pharmacologic therapies and other therapies should be done by uh, neutral bodies. Yeah, and it sounds like there's a lot of intersection between CMEs and and a variety of medications. Was there anything specific about the intersection of opioids and the continuing medical education uh, that made you particularly interested in studying opioids in specific? Um, well, there's a there's a lot of uh, of interesting things going on now, and and that have gone on historically. So several of the things that that opioid manufacturers um, invented were the concept of opiophobia, which referred to physicians who were afraid to prescribe opioids because they were afraid of addicting their patients. Um, so that was used as a way to um, of sort of um, goad physicians into mm. prescribing more opioids. Like, what are you, a dinosaur? You know, you think those <laughs> opioids are so addictive and really, uh, you know, you have a wrong idea about that. Um, a- another thing that they invented was the concept of pseudo-addiction. So doctors realized that they were giving their patients opioids and they seemed to be expressing addictive behavior. So pharmaceutical companies came up with the concept of pseudo-addiction, which looked exactly like addiction, but was solved by increasing someone's dose of opioids. So the concept was, oh, this wasn't addiction. This was just undertreated pain. You just needed to increase the dose of the patient. And then if they're demanding aberrant addictive behavior went away, that shows that it was pseudo-addiction, not addiction. In fact, there's no difference between addiction and pseudo-addiction. It was just a term that was created to make physicians feel okay about continuing to prescribe increasing doses of opioids to patients who are clearly addicted. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've we've hit a lot of the major points of this study. Do you feel like there's any more general takeaways that we haven't discussed yet? Um, just that it, it it's very time-consuming and, 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 and complicated to reverse engineer uh, marketing messages from the not only continuing medical education um, activities, but also educational activities uh, for consumers and testimony that's provided to state legislators. Um, for example, um, that there's lots of subtle ways in which pharmaceutical manufacturers are promoting their opioids and promoting other drugs, um, and that it's really important to have a high index of suspicion and it's important to keep industry out of the room when public health concerns are being addressed. Um, and now I'm going to jump back a little bit and talk uh, about some of the stuff you were doing before you went to med school. I know you have a, a history of advocacy before you went down your MD path. Um, how do you feel as though your research and your advocacy uh, have informed one another over the course of your career? So it's important anytime one is doing um, research to um, be as objective as as possible in terms of how a research question is being answered. But what really makes a difference in terms of industry-funded research and non-industry-funded research is what are the questions that are being asked. And right. it's, it's really important for us to support non-industry-funded research, to support government-funded research, because um, the government doesn't have a profit motive in terms of, of, of what the results of research, um, of, of what research is. So any research that's done has to be done in, in, in as objective a way as possible. Um, and so a- advocacy is is separate. Uh, my, you know, 
advocacy, public health advocacy or any kind of advocacy should be separate from research, but certainly they can each inform each other. Um, and one of my you know, frustrations is that often um, biomedical researchers will do really great research, but they won't defend it when it gets attacked by industry. And mm-hmm. industry, um, it's a tactic for industry to attack research that it doesn't like. Yeah. And this really corrupts the scientific process because in an ideal world, um, uh, there's research that's done, some of it's good, some of it's bad, but the bad research gets uh, criticized and falls out of favor and people would stop referring to it. But what's happening now is that good research is being slammed by industry and industry has really taken over medical discourse and gets to decide um, what research gets done, how that research is interpreted, and how it's applied. Um, So it's really important for real researchers to also defend the work that they do and to be aware of when there are industry-funded attacks on their work. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. It feels to me oftentimes as though the industry believes itself to be uh, sort of above the scientific process um, and just kind of gets to do whatever whatever it says. Um, so that's a very important point. Thanks for bringing that up. I also understand that you maintain medicinal herb gardens on the Georgetown campus and direct the Urban Herbs Project. Can you tell me about that and how that work uh, intersects with your research and interest in general? So that's that's really a completely um, different project of mine. Um, and I do maintain gardens on campus that um, demonstrate a variety of techniques, including permaculture techniques, where uh, um, where perennials are emphasized, uh, zeroculture techniques, in um, which um, water thrifty gardening is emphasized, and ecologic gardening um, concepts that help pollinators and birds and um, and the environment in in general. I also do grow medicinal herbs and also culinary herbs and um, and some small fruits as well in an effort to try and get my very urban students to <laughs> um, <laughs> get some understanding and appreciation of the natural world around them. Um, many of my students have never actually like plucked a berry off of a bush and put oh, it wow. into their mouth. And that, that can be a profound experience if you've never <laughs> had it. <laughs> so, um, or, you know, brewed a tea out of something that's 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 grown on campus. So um, I I love it that people will uh, take sprigs of my mint and um, make <laughs> make it into tea. Um, um, they're also the gardens are used by the by Georgetown um, Hospital. The nurses bring and parents of of sick kids will bring them down to the gardens to enjoy them. So that's really great. But um, I feel like that's a it's a pretty different. It's a completely different project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then just to close, uh, if you could imagine us fast forwarding a little bit into the future, uh, in your ideal world, where does the relationship between the pharmaceutical industry and the medical field stand, and how do we get there? More importantly, so there's this fiction that pharmaceutical companies and um, and medicine have the both have the best interests of the patients at heart, and that's not actually true. That um, legally and ethically healthcare providers uh, must represent the best interests of their patients and uh, legally and ethically pharmaceutical companies have to represent the best interests of their stockholders. So those are not the same thing at all. Um, I think it's really important for medicine to, um, for physicians and nurses and um, PAs and, and pharmacists to separate themselves from pharmaceutical industry and not accept 
education from them, not accept gifts, not accept um, funding for conferences, uh, and uh, go back to where we're actually having the debates about particular therapies and um, particular um, treatments within an unbiased environment. So pharmaceutical companies should make drugs and um, they should focus on actually um, creating innovative therapies and not just on marketing uh, therapies that are often mediocre or for which the harms outweigh the benefits. It would be great if pharmaceutical companies could just focus on creating innovative drugs. Well, I'm with you there. I think we share that uh, that future vision. So I just wanted to thank you again for taking the time to chat with me. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Sure. So did I. Thanks for having me. Well, I'd just like to thank Gavin and Dr. Few Berman for that interview. And if you'd like to read more about the study mentioned, you can find the item on maddenamerica.com under Research News. The item is entitled, Researchers Find Bias in Industry-Funded Continuing Medical Education. So thanks for listening, and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.